open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24. Matthew 24, and if you like, you can also put a marker in Revelation 19. We'll be looking at these two passages today. We'll have other verses. I'll have a number of them for you up on the overhead. But we're continuing our study, uh, this series entitled Things to Come. And, uh, you know, today we'll be looking at what I'm calling part two of the return of Christ. Uh, You know our setting, Matthew chapter 24 and 25, Jesus, the Olivet Discourse, he's up on the Mount of Olives, he's answering specific questions to his disciples concerning the end of the age, concerning his return. And we see really a prophetic view of what God has in mind coming to us in the future. Jesus speaks very clearly about the tribulation. He talks about it being a time that uh, of great tri- trouble like none before or since. But he does say that it will be shortened, lest the, even the elect be destroyed. And the idea is that it will be shortened by his return. He is the one that will come at the end of the tribulation and establish his rule and reign upon the earth. We were looking at a few things, and we started last week, five things that we want to see today uh, com- concerning the return of Christ. We looked last week at the warnings that Jesus speaks of in Matthew 24, those warnings against spiritual deception. We also ta- uh, considered his, appearing, his appearing, the actual visible uh, things to expect when he comes. He said, I'm going to be seen like lightning flashing from the east to the west. There'll be heavenly signs and the sun, the moon and the stars and all the earth will see and respond. Some will mourn in rebellion, some will mourn in repentance, even unto salvation. And today, what I'd like to look at is his victory, his judgment, and his kingdom. All of this related to his second coming. Got a lot to cover today, and I pray that we can track together. Let's get started. Matthew 24, let's talk, uh, let's review just some of these verses, and then we'll look at these three points today. Matthew 24, look with me in verse 30. Matthew 24 and verse 30. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. I'd like you to consider that when Jesus comes again, he is coming in victory. It says there in verse 30, they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He is coming as a victor over the things of the earth. He is coming in victory. He is coming as King of kings and Lord of lords. Revelation chapter 19 gives us a little more detail about how Jesus comes in uh, power and great glory. Revelation 19 and verse 11, now the apostle John sees this, now I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. 
And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is quite a picture of Jesus' return to the earth. I think if you read that, you can't help but get a little fear, holy fear of God in your heart, like, wow, when he comes, he's coming for business. He's coming in great power and glory. When Jesus came to the earth the first time, of course, he was born in a manger. He took on human flesh as a child, and he grew up and and suffered the, the trials of this life. We know that he ultimately gave his life as a sacrifice for sin. And when he presented himself as Messiah to Jerusalem, he came very humbly. Remember riding on a donkey, coming in and then offering himself as the Lamb of God. His second coming will not be like that at all. He's not coming on a donkey, he's coming on a white horse. He's not coming as the Lamb of God to offer himself as sacrifice, but rather he's coming in righteousness to judge, and to make war. He's coming as victor. And he is coming not alone. We see that the armies of heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, are with him. Now the book of Revelation reveals that this army of of those clothed in fine linen and uh, white and clean are in fact the church. We see that earlier in the book of Revelation, those that worship the Lamb, those clothed uh, from every tribe and tongue, that it is the church that comes with the Lord. So I expect to be there. I expect to be on my own white horse, dressed in my own white linen garments. I won't be armed. Jesus does all the fighting. He doesn't need our help. But we come with him in this victory entrance into the earth. Uh, it says that um, you know, he comes with his church from the clouds. You'll remember when he came as described for his church... He gathered us into the clouds. A very different entrance now. He comes with his church from the clouds. Different than the rapture event. But he's coming in victory. It says that his robe is dipped in blood. And that his word goes out like a sword striking the nations. He treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. This is a battle that he's coming to execute. Uh, The book of Revelation chapter 16, uh, you don't need to turn, but I'll just summarize. It talks about these demonic spirits that will go out and gather the kings of the earth together in the final days, and they will be gathered together to make war in a place called Armageddon. It's a a literal place in Israel. Uh, There is a mountain called Megiddo. And Armageddon simply means the mountain of Megiddo, the valley that's, that is immediately before the mountain of Megiddo. And if you go, go there and you see it, it's this vast valley that kind of uh, connects east and west of Israel. It's up in the northern section and a huge valley. Many battles have been fought there through history and there is a battle yet to come. And it says that Jesus will come there and execute his battle. But the, but the interesting thing about this battle, and, and as you study kind of the words that, that describe it, it's not just a single battle there in Armageddon. 
but rather a campaign. It's, it, sees, it seems that Jesus comes sweeping through the nation of Israel, Armageddon being the most prominent where the armies are gathered, but he comes through a, n- a number of places in Israel executing war and vengeance and victory. I'll give you just a few references. In Isaiah 63, it says he comes from Edom and Basra, mighty to save. Garments stained in red from the blood of his enemies. Edom and Basra are in the southern area of Israel. Armageddon is in the north. It's as if he starts in the south and works his way north. Zechariah chapter 14, it says that he will fight in the day of battle and his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives and the mountain will be split in two, creating a large valley. It may be that the battle ends there just outside of Jerusalem, Jesus standing on the Mount of Olives, either via earthquake or some supernatural work of God's power. The Mount of Olives is going to split and there's going to be a great valley that runs between Jerusalem and the Judean desert. And all of this takes place at his return. Back there in Revelation 19, it tells us that he will capture the beast, the Antichrist, and the false prophet and cast them alive into the lake of fire. They're the first to go into this lake of fire. The the Antichrist, he's there ruling and, and trying to establish his reign in Jerusalem. Remember the abomination of desolation. He's there wanting to be worshiped as God. He's there with his armies. And in that moment, Jesus comes, captures him, and disposes of him and his false prophet. And the rest, the remaining armies, are killed with the power of his word that goes out like a sword from his mouth. Christ is the victor. This is a good vision for us. This is an important perspective for us. The Bible talks about today, as we live in this life, we partake in the sufferings of Christ. When Christ was among us, he suffered. He endured. And so those that follow him today in this world that rejects him, rejects God, what is our lot? We also partake in some measure of the sufferings of Christ. But we ought not to think that that's the full experience that we have with Christ. Because the Bible teaches that though we suffer with Christ, we will also be glorified with Christ. And that's an encouraging thought because we do suffer trial and and trouble in this life. Sometimes we suffer persecution for our faith, even in this country, although it's not as much as some that are being persecuted unto death, we do suffer something of kind of a, a cultural put-down uh, upon the Christian community, right? We're kind of being marginalized, minimalized. We're, we're just kind of old-fashioned and, and narrow-minded. And, and, and so Christianity has a little stigma to it in our day. But listen, don't let the culture overwhelm you. Don't let this temporary light affliction trouble you. You, if you've thrown your allegiance in with Christ, believe me, he's coming as victor over all the earth. Today we suffer the persecution, the sufferings of Christ, but on that day there will be glory and power that we will enjoy with him. We'll be coming with him in victory. The apostle Paul had something of a vision of this It says in Philippians 2, verse 9 and 11, because of Christ's victory over death and the grave, therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, 
that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul said, look, this is who he is. This is what has been given to him. Today, not every knee bows. Today, not every tongue confesses. In fact, many tongues blaspheme his name. Many imagine that they are king and Lord of their own life. But Paul says, don't be deceived. Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. And he merely tarries now because of God's mercy and long-suffering and patience, not wanting any to perish, but that all might have opportunity to be saved. He tarries, he waits, not because he's not King of kings and Lord of lords, but because he's being patient and merciful. But Paul says, make no mistake, the day is coming. Every knee, every tongue, and he will come in victory. So I would say, don't be discouraged today. Don't be discouraged at, at, at these temporary sufferings or at some, uh, don't be ashamed of any persecution that you may have to endure, any social kind of uh, shame because you're a Christian and it's, it's not very popular today. Throw your allegiance in with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You'll not be disappointed. He is these things. He is coming in victory. We have opportunity to identify with him now by faith, not seeing the fullness of it yet, but knowing that it's true, knowing that his promises are true, and we will on that day enjoy what we embrace today by faith. I referenced Isaiah 63. Let me just quote that verse to you, Isaiah 63, verse 1. A question is asked by the prophet. Who is this who comes from Edom? with dyed garments from Basra, the one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. Who is this one that I see coming? And the answer, I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. That's the answer. That's who's coming. Jesus, mighty to save. Jesus, mighty to complete what he has begun at the cross and resurrection. He is seated at the right hand now waiting until the enemies are made his footstool. But that day is coming, and when he comes, he comes in glory and power, and he comes mighty to save. He comes in victory. The fourth thing in our five points here concerning his return is his judgment. His judgment. Let's talk about that for a moment. Again, verse 31 from Matthew 24 tells us a little bit of insight as to how he comes. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So when, when he comes, he sends out his angels, and there is a gathering. There is a separating, if you will. There is a judgment, a discerning as to who to gather and who not to gather. The elect are gathered from all, all of the four winds of heaven of heaven to the other. And it tells us, Jesus said in another place, speaking in a parable, he talked about the wheat and the tares. Do you remember that? And he said that, you know, the, the, the seed goes out and, and the wheat begins to grow, but then an enemy comes and sows tares, weeds amongst the harvest. And, and the servants of the, of the master said, should we go and uproot all the tares, all the weeds? And the master said, no, lest you damage the wheat. Wait until harvest time. 
Then we will gather them all and the tares and the wheat will be separated. This is a picture of what seems to be taking place when Jesus returns. He's coming to judge the earth. He's coming to to separate the wheat from the tares. His elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. His elect, we believe, will will represent all those that are in faith with him. Of course, the church, we're already raptured. We're already coming with him. So, but yet there are some that need to be gathered. Well, all those that are alive at the time of his return, many will be saved. Many will be Christians. Many will be Israelites, Jewish people that have come to faith. This, the scripture is clear that there will be a, a great turning to Christ during the tribulation. They're, the, they're part of the elect that will be gathered, both Jews and I believe Gentiles, those that have come to faith. It also seems that the Old Testament saints who have not yet experienced their resurrection, you remember when Jesus came at the rapture, it was the church that was caught up, the bride of Christ. But what about those Old Testament saints that are with the Lord now in his presence, yet not enjoying the resurrected bodies that the church will will partake of in the moment he gathers the church? We believe it is at this time they too will be raised in new and glorified bodies. God is gathering all who he will be bringing into his future kingdom. And so in this moment, we see something of a judgment. Gathering all together. Back to Matthew, and this time to chapter 25. We see, and we're just kind of jumping ahead here because I want to highlight this time of judgment for you. Remember, Matthew 24 and 25 is all one long discourse from Jesus We're picking out some highlights here today. Talking about judgment, Jesus seems to identify and and speak of judgment in Matthew 25. Look with me, verse 31. Matthew 25, 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. So this happens when He comes. His angels have gathered them. And he is seated on the earth on a throne of his glory. Verse 32, all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? Verse 40, and the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Verse 41, then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Interesting. The lake of fire, 
is not prepared for man. It was prepared for the devil and his angels. But man who rejects Christ, man that is determined to reject God, man who aligns himself with the devil against God, against his Savior, he will inherit what the devil inherits. Prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 42, for I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not take me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And then they also will answer him saying, Lord... When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the, of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. When he comes in glory... It seems immediately following his battle victories, he gathers the nations for a time of judgment, a separation of sheep and goats, the sheep on the right, the goats on the left. The sheep are invited to inherit the kingdom that has been prepared from the foundation of the world, but the goats are sent away to everlasting fire prepared for Satan and his angels. And the, distinguishment, the distinguishing between the sheep and goats, it seems to be the works that they participated in during their time on the earth. Now, in context here, it seems to be those that were alive during the tribulation, that Jesus is looking for true faith to be manifested by true works of faith. The Bible is clear that no man is saved by works. These men are not, these, these sheep are not saved by their good deeds, but rather their faith is evidenced by their deeds. You know, it's one thing to profess that you know him. It's another thing to truly know him in such a way that your life is changed, that your heart is changed, that you take on something of his heart. He becomes the Lord of your life. He begins to give you the desires of your heart. And Jesus is evaluating these men based on faith that manifested in true works. I like what one commentator says, the good deeds commended here are the fruit, not the root of salvation. Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Some compassion flowing for his brethren during the time of tribulation. We know that it's going to be a time of great persecution against the Jews and against those that come to faith in Christ, Jew and Gentile. And Jesus is saying, look, did you have compassion for fellow believers? And was there a compassion in your heart for the persecuted Jews during the time of tribulation? You may have heard the, the famous story of Corey Ten Boom. She's the author of a very, uh, a very good book called The Hiding Place. It's a true story. She was a, just a young woman living in Europe during Nazi Germany persecution during the Holocaust. 
She was not Jewish, she was Dutch, but her and her family were very devout Christians. And as Christians, they reached out and hid and helped many of the Jews who were being persecuted. It's estimated that during the Holocaust, her and her family saved up to 800 Jewish lives just because their hearts were tender towards the people that were being persecuted. In James chapter 2, James says, and James, boy, James is one of these very practical uh, writers. In other words, this is what Christianity looks like in the real world. James 2 and verse 14, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can faith save him? Or we should say, can that faith without works save him? Faith that has no corresponding action or change? Verse 15, if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. True living faith changes the way we live. It, it takes on the heart of God because we're born again by the Spirit of God. And James is simply saying, look, if you, have, if you are so selfish and, and distracted and have no care or concern for your brethren in need, you're specifically, he says, your brethren, those that are of the faith, and you have no concern for them, something's not right in your heart because God is very concerned for them. And you, if you're truly walking in faith with the true and living God, your heart will be burdened as his is. Is your faith manifesting the fruit of faith? And so this is the separation that Jesus is doing with these sheep and goats. Some may be professing faith, but Jesus is saying, how did it show up in your life? Because true faith will show up in your life. And he says, come, come you blessed of my father, I love this phrase, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Interesting, this phrase, prepared for you from the foundation of the world. If there's one thing that I'd like you to consider during our study of these prophetic uh, passages is that you will begin to see that God has every specific detail concerning the future planned out. He's not just winging it through history. God has planned and forecast all things. He's allowing things. He's already seen it. He knows the beginning from the end. God is one who orchestrates his people, his, our lives, our future. All these things are prepared for us. And even the good works that God would call us to walk in he has prepared for us. We don't have to, 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 to think about it on our own. It's not up to you to figure out, you know, how your Christianity should, should look. It's for you to allow Christ to live his life through you by the empowering of the Holy Spirit because he's already got works for you. He's already got things destined for you before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 2 and verse 8. For by grace you have been saved. Through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. You're not saved by works. You're saved by grace through faith. 
For, but look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You're not saved by your works. You're saved by grace, through faith. It's the gift of God. It's free for your heart that receives it. You're not saved by any work or effort or any religious duty. You're not saved by works. But, I'll, but, but Paul says, but you are saved for good works. God saves you. It's a free gift. And then he allows you to begin to fulfill the good works that he has for you, that he's prepared beforehand, before the foundation of the world. God has a plan for you. God's, you're not just bouncing through circumstance, you know, by coincidence. God has a plan and a purpose, particularly for his children. And he has a kingdom prepared for you. He has good works for you to walk in. Let's consider the, fi the fifth and final thing on our study concerning his return. Let's talk about this kingdom that he's prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Back to Revelation, if you have your hand kind of saving that spot, we're going to move forward. We saw his return, his victory in, Re in chapter 19. Immediately following, we see chapter 20 in Revelation. John sees something else immediately following Christ's return. Revelation 20 and verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. So immediately following Christ's come, coming, he, he has victory over the, the enemies and the armies of the Antichrist. The Antichrist and the false prophet are cast into the lake of fire. But Satan, he's not thrown into the lake of fire just yet. Rather, he is captured and bound and locked, incarcerated in the bottomless pit for a thousand years. He's on a long time out for a thousand years wherein Christ now will establish his rule and reign upon the earth. We call this the millennial reign of Christ, the thousand-year reign of Christ. Satan is bound. Christ now begins to, to rule and reign on the earth. He brings in the church and all the resurrected saints. We come in with glorified bodies. We were translated at the rapture or when he came uh, for the church, if we die before the rapture. Also, all of the living believers, the sheep that were there at the, at the separation of the sheep and goats, they are also coming into the kingdom. All the Old Testament saints are resurrected. They are coming into the kingdom. But there are those that are in lit, going in in resurrected, glorified bodies. But there are also those that are going into the millennium in mortal bodies. Those that are alive, surviving the tribulation, they never died, so they don't need resurrection. They come, when Christ comes, they're alive, but they've come to faith. The sheep, they're invited into the kingdom. 
So going into the millennium is only believers, both glorified, resurrected believers and mortal believers surviving the tribulation. And these go into a thousand-year time upon the earth where Christ will be ruling and reigning. It is a time of peace and righteousness, and it is a time of a renewed and a restored earth. Even the earth itself is going to be transformed during these thousand years. I'll quote to you just one. There are other passages that that give us indication of this, but this one comes from Isaiah 11, verses 6 through 9. Listen to this description of what, what the, what's going on on the earth during this time. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little child shall lead them. A cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing, the nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is a, a completely renewed earth, almost maybe like the Garden of Eden before the fall, before sin, before the curse. Paul in Romans says that even the earth today is groaning, waiting to be redeemed from the curse, waiting for the revelation of the sons of God. The earth itself is going to be set free, transformed into a new restored earth during this millennial reign. The animal kingdom is going to be changed. There's not going to be this vicious killing and surviving. They're all going to be vegetarians. I'm not, I'm not sure about that because I really like, you know, my, my steak, but I'm not, it doesn't say that men won't, okay, so we don't know, but the animals won't be killing each other. So it's going to be this new and wonderful time. We won't be disappointed. We won't be disappointed with the menu either. And so, you know, it, it goes on and says in other places that, uh, you know, life, lifespans will be extended again. Remember in the Old Testament, before the flood, people lived to be a thousand years old? And that's what the Bible says. Look, if a child dies at 100 years old, it's going to be, he's going to be considered like cursed. So there is going to be these mortal bodies that go on and are populated. A thousand years, you can do a lot of populating of the earth, especially if everybody's living to be a thousand years old. So the earth is going to be in this wonderful restored state. But those that are born, everyone that goes in are believers. But those that are born, guess what? Not every one of those offspring are necessarily going to be loyal to Christ. Satan will be bound. There'll be no temptation or deceit from him. But what this reveals is that even in the perfect setting, even with Jesus ruling and reigning on the throne from Jerusalem, keeping peace and order upon the earth, even in this beautiful restored earth, men's hearts will find rebellion. And they will turn against him. And that is the reason Revelation 20 tells us that Satan will be released for a brief time. At the end of the thousand years, he will deceive the nations and lead one last rebellion. God puts down the rebellion immediately. And the devil is cast into the lake of fire. And then at the end of that episode, there is what's recorded for us again in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, 
what's referred to as the great white throne judgment. This is the final judgment. After all these events, God will call all those that rejected Christ, all those whose names are not written in the book of life, and they will be judged before God on a great white throne that he sits, and they, with the devil and his angels, will go into the lake of fire for having rejected Christ and having rejected God's offer of salvation. These are, this is the timeline that the scripture gives to us. Following that judgment, following the thousand-year reign, a new heaven and a new earth are described for us in Revelation chapter 21. Look with me there. The millennial kingdom gives way to the eternal kingdom. And it's a beautiful picture, verse 1 of Revelation 21. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. Then I saw John, uh, then I, John, excuse me, saw the holy city, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. We see God's ultimate plan. And we see, I think, what ministered to my heart was that phrase, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. When it's all said and done, when God has played out all of His redemptive work and plan, His ultimate desire is to dwell with men, to tabernacle with us. That's the heart of God. That's what you and I were created for. Fellowship with our maker. God loves us. And all of this that he does to redeem, to save, to, 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 to rescue, is that he might find those through grace that he can tabernacle with for eternity. You see, you're made, you're made for fellowship with God. And you know, we, we try so many other things to fulfill or satisfy that that emptiness, that frustration, that longing in the heart. Before we come to faith in Christ, how many of you tried all kinds of things? All kinds of pursuits, all kinds of ambitions, all kinds of pleasures, all kinds of activity to try and satisfy what was longing in the heart. Something empty, something missing, and a frustration and a disappointment in almost everything that you touch. Until the touch of God in your life and all of a sudden... Your heart is opened up to the fellowship that you were made for and your heart is brought into a place of rest and peace and you realize it was Jesus all along. It was always Him that I needed. It was always Him that I longed for. And the beautiful thing is, He longs for you. He wants that relationship with you. 
we don't, we're stubborn sometimes, even as Christians, aren't we? Even as believers, sometimes we, we taste that goodness of God. We, we love that fellowship, but then, you know, we wander. We get longing eyes and we, well, you know, maybe I can, maybe I can make it on my own. Or, or, or maybe I can venture out and, and enjoy some of the spoils of, of, and pleasures of the earth and then, then rush quick back to get back to that safe place with the Lord. And we begin to, we begin to drift. But listen, how many of those wanderings, how many of those prodigal journeys have ended in great frustration, hurt, and despair, and discouragement, and you have to come home. You have to come home. It'd be best not to leave. <laughs> It'd be best to stay in that place where your heart is filled with grace and God's love and purpose for your life. But the beauty of all of this, and we'll close here, is that God, God has thoughts and plans for you. And, and they include... Him tabernacling with you. They include Him making all things new. And I, I assure you that you, you won't be disappointed with what He has. And you won't be disappointed with anything that you miss on the journey. Final verse, Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil. To give you a future and a hope. Amen. Let's pray. Father, my own heart is encouraged today. And my heart, Lord, for your church is that they too would be encouraged. Lord, my, my prayer is that something of, of a perspective would illuminate hearts today. That we would begin to see that the trial of today, that the momentary light affliction, that this ordeal that I'm in, Lord, this isn't forever. This isn't where I'm going to end up. That the perspective of what you have ultimately planned and the sureness of what is coming, Lord, and the confidence that we can have will give a grace to endure and walk through even today's trial with a sense of hope and perspective. And the second thing, Lord, that I hope will really register with the hearts today is just how much you love us. Just how committed and devoted you are to us. Your whole plan and purpose is to save and you are mighty to save. And it's all that the work of Christ who came and died for our sin, who rose from the dead, who will come again and will gather us to himself that we might be with him forever that we might enjoy His rule and reign on the earth, that we might enjoy His eternal reign in a new heaven and a new earth. Oh, Jesus, thank You. Thank You that You love us so that You've come to save. And as our heads are bowed here today and just closing in prayer and we'll, we'll, we'll finish out today in a song of worship, but my heart goes out to some that may need prayer Today, it may be that you are here and, and you do not know the Lord in a personal way. Maybe you are that heart that has been searching and looking everywhere but Jesus. And you're frustrated and you realize that, you know what, I'm never going to be satisfied until I make peace with the God who made me. 
And he offers that today. He offers peace. He offers mercy. Jesus died on the cross. He knocks on the door of your heart and saying, open up, I'll come in. I want a tabernacle with you. I want to live with you in peace and relationship. And maybe you've never received that, but today, you know in your heart it's time to come to Jesus. Maybe you're here today and you need to come back to Jesus. Maybe you've drifted away from the Lord. Maybe you're not walking in close relationship with Him today. And, and I don't know, somehow these thoughts of what He's planned for you have reminded you that, you know what, what He has for you is better than anything you're going to find anywhere else. And you just need to come back to that place of trusting Him, surrendering afresh to Him, receiving His grace and mercy anew, and recommitting, rededicating your life to the Lord. I'd like to pray for you too. So if you're here today, you want to receive Christ for the very first time, or you would like to rededicate and recommit your life to Him, I'm going to ask you just to raise your hand where you're seated, and I'll pray for you. Anybody here today? Hand there in the center section. God bless you. Also on the aisle, a couple of hands there. Anyone else? The Lord speaking to you. You need this prayer. You need the Lord. You need to come back to the Lord. He loves you. He's got good works prepared for you. Center section on the aisle. Amen. Several people respond. Anybody else just before I pray? God bless you. Holy Spirit speaking to some of you. Anyone else just before we pray? So Lord, these hearts having responded here today, we, we just, we lift them up to you now, Lord, and we ask that you would meet them. Who is this one that is coming in glory? Who is this one that is coming to bring peace and righteousness upon the earth. It is none other but Jesus, mighty to save. And so, Lord, Savior, meet these hearts today. You are mighty to save. The past is forgiven. The present is secured. And the future is glorious. Meet these hearts today, Lord, as they sincerely turn to you and say, Jesus, forgive me. Forgive me of my sin. I believe you love me. I believe you died on the cross. That you're coming again. That you're mighty to save. And I want my life to be in step with you. Not only cleanse me and forgive me. But God, by your grace, help me. Help me to walk in those good works that you've prepared for me. Help me to walk in that relationship where... I belong to you. You're my God, and I'm your child. Tabernacle with me, O oh God, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.